Welcome to Traditionally Talking, the podcast of the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations. I'm your host, journalist Charles Parkiner, and in this podcast, we yarn with traditional owners from across the state about some of the amazing work being undertaken to care for and connect with country, build stronger culture and communities, and much more. The Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations acknowledges all traditional owners across the land now known as Victoria. We pay respect to their connection to land, waters, culture and law, and to Elders past, present and those who will lead in years to come. Welcome to our podcast, and today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Wootathir and Merriam woman, Dr. Terry Janke. She's the Solicitor Director of Terry Janke and & Company and an internationally recognised leading authority on Indigenous cultural and intellectual property. Terry, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Charles, for having me. Terry, let's get right into it. What really is Indigenous cultural and intellectual property in a nutshell? Well, Indigenous cultural and intellectual property are First Nations people's rights to their heritage. So it's the physical things but also the intangible things like the cultural practice, the knowledge and the cultural expression. So when we talk about intellectual property, we typically think about things such as uh, trademarked designs, songs, but in reality the law seems to focus on individuals' rights for intellectual property rather than communal rights, where it would be song, dances, languages, for example, art styles. So how does that work out, where the individual is protected under the Australian law, but it seems that communal rights are not? Well, Indigenous cultural and intellectual property rights are collective rights to heritage. So it comes from Indigenous people's place, Uh, It is a living culture and it's handed on through the generations. That intergenerational transfer is really important. So languages, song lines, kinships, caring for country practices, they're all part of that cultural and intellectual property. It is different from Western law IP, which tends to be focusing on expressions or individual uh, outputs and as you said, trademarks, copyright, patent law, uh, which all look for either registered owners or individual authors. But for Indigenous cultural and intellectual property, it's the pool of that heritage knowledge that Indigenous people uh, interact with and are creating new things. So the protection of it is there in customary law or protocol, but not recognised in the Western intellectual property laws. So what are some of the other things that traditional owners may think they hold IP over, but in reality they don't? For example, foods? Well, bush foods is a big one. You see bush foods industry growing pretty steadily now, and less than 2% of that market is Indigenous. And the knowledge or the resources are Indigenous and tested over thousands of years of living on country. So for Indigenous people, 
the recognition of that uh, traditional knowledge when we're seeing now people patterning or you know, really commercialising things like the kakadu plum, we are calling for greater rights and that's an access and benefit sharing issue. How can that actually be achieved though because it is a communal knowledge or communal ownership over a particular type of food or a particular design, how can the law adapt to that communal ownership or intellectual property? Yes, and we're seeing international conventions like the Nagoya Protocol, a supplementary convention to the Convention on Biological Diversity dealing with this issue for traditional knowledge holders worldwide. But I guess it's got to be about recognising the free prior informed consent of Indigenous groups and working with the relevant authorities and the knowledge holders to recognise their contributions. So protocols play a big part of it currently, but there are laws in states now that say if you're accessing that uh, knowledge, you need to have an access and benefit sharing agreement. So it's about involving Indigenous people rather than in the past just mining old records or talking to people and taking their knowledge and uh, commercialising it. So there's a lot that can be done uh, just by collaborating with those people. It's interesting you make mention of mining through old records because that's an important part of ICIP and that is documentation. So stories that have been noted down by white people uh, in contact with Indigenous peoples, of course the Dreamtime stories that have been so exploited of, of over the years, um, film of people. So all these things seem to be in the mix? Yes, and you've just highlighted a really uh, important way that Indigenous knowledge gets appropriated when other people record it. So they will go into communities, uh, particularly in the past, and record people either you know take notes and they write up books or the filming or the sound recording and copyright will come into play. It'll recognise that the person who's writing up the story as the author of it, the person who's making the sound recording, the owner of it, and the filmmaker, the owner of it. And it becomes something that they then can use and manage when it's uh, circulated throughout the world. And that's been a loss for a lot of Indigenous people. So it's getting back that ownership through Indigenous cultural and intellectual property rights that's the key to cultural continuation. So are there existing legal means by which Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders can move to protect their communal IP, such as knowledge and use of specific plants and even languages? Well, people have got to manage that interface of where people are coming in. I'm saying Aboriginal people need to manage it. And so ask the questions about, you know, why are you getting this, inf- why do you want this information, how it will be used, having agreements with people about how it is used and negotiating rights. So we do that sort of work by writing agreements for people. The other big movement is in protocols. So where there's the gaps in the law with that protection not there for Indigenous knowledge holders and people who come in and write things being the copyright owners, what we advocate for is the recognition of those rights through protocols and industries and universities, organisations, Aboriginal organisations are starting to have these protocols. 
So I would say to Aboriginal communities to develop their own protocols, think about their processes when people are coming in to the community, have agreements and talk about that ownership because you can overturn those general copyright law principles on ownership if you have written agreements but you have to do it at the point people are coming in. We have a legacy issue of things that have been taken in the past and you know it's held in libraries and archives and owned by other people and so repatriation of that knowledge is an important thing and you know uh, we're seeing now archives and libraries uh, instigating protocols around when people access it that they have to go back to the traditional owners but it takes a lot of thought now for traditional owners to think strategically about how they can manage those two areas when people are coming in are we asking the right questions are we putting in the right protections and practices around you know the way we manage the recording of our knowledge and also that other piece around how do we maintain our cultural authority over things that are already recorded what about industries themselves non-indigenous industries what would you like to see within that particular set of organisations, some form of self-regulation, certification of some sort, what's going to take it from there? I think they're all good suggestions. The protocols within industry have been a really good way to deal with a gap in the law and we see the Australia Council's First Nations Cultural and Intellectual Property Protocols being an example of that when there's cultural and arts projects using Indigenous cultural expression like songs or know detailing dreaming stories or Mm. dance they have been very useful so more and more industries can do that and we're seeing that in film tech and you know other corporations thinking about how they use knowledge within their sector i think the environmental natural resource sector is another one definitely bush foods needs to think of it but i also do think things like the labeling the authenticity labels the certification and accreditation are good ways if they're Indigenous, managed and controlled. They're really good ways for uh, industries to uh, enable Indigenous cultural and intellectual property rights recognition. And I think there's a real opportunity in the bush foods, bush product space. And I know that the Federation has been working on um, something like that as well. So it's time for traditional owner groups to lawyer up or at least be their own gatekeepers when it comes to the legality and safekeeping of their their own particular knowledge and IP. And time also, it seems, to push industries to adopt some form of regulation or to adhere to a certification of some sort. What about from a legal perspective? What does the government need to do, the federal and state governments? Well, the state governments need to do better on their access and benefit sharing laws and the implementation of them and really look at how that can be when people get permits and access to natural resources, how Indigenous people who are giving access to either land or knowledge can have those access and benefit sharing agreements really clearly. And Queensland's latest draft of their Biodiscovery Act has got a good model. And I also like that the Commonwealth now is looking again at the need for legislation for Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous cultural expression and that sort of ties into work that's being done internationally. While it's been fairly slow but the World Intellectual Property Organisation 
has been looking at developing traditional knowledge or traditional cultural expression or access to genetic resources laws that take into account Indigenous peoples' rights. So I think there's more the Commonwealth can do on that. They have made a commitment and I know uh, this current government made a commitment to that. But I think that uh, with what Indigenous people can do to get ready for that, First Nations people can get involved more with the international debate, Mm. the World Intellectual Property Organisation, and then look at models uh, based on protocols that really empower Indigenous people to make decisions. So we're looking for maybe a cultural authority or cultural authorities, sort of a bottom-up approach, ways that Indigenous people can basically be empowered to make those decisions. I I don't want to see it be a model that empowers governments. We don't want to look to governments to be given the rights to do that. Yeah. We want to make it so Indigenous people are making those decisions. Dr Terry Janke, thanks very much. Thank you, Charles.